You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. This is week 10, covering Matthew chapters 26 through 28. Morning. So this is it. And ever since last summer, when I was put on the schedule to teach this lesson, I've wondered how to handle so much crucial material. So hold on to your seats, we have a lot today. But the last couple of weeks, instead of challenging me as a teacher, it's compelled me to be a worshiper as I dug into it. When I prayed asking God how to approach this, all that came to my mind was that I should teach barefoot. So I am. And that's not my style. I don't delight in being unconventional, drawing attention. But it's not about me. Being barefoot is an outward expression of inner worship and humility. Two years ago, we saw Moses take off his shoes at the burning bush. It's holy ground. But the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord are holier than the burning bush. Being barefoot is also a sign of humility. My father grew up right after the Great Depression. He was never allowed to go barefoot. It was a point of pride for my grandfather that he could afford shoes for his children, and he wanted everyone to know. But there's no room for pride at the foot of the cross. So today, I come as lead worshiper, asking you to join me. You don't have to take off your shoes, you can, but that you open your hearts to God. We're actually following Mary's lead. Her anointing of Jesus is probably the first event chronologically in chapter 26. The workbook chart puts it on Friday or Saturday. It may be a day or two later, but of course before the Last Supper. The parallel account in John 12 names Mary as the woman. Mary is a beautiful picture of worship. She breaks open an alabaster jar of ointment, something like the one on the screen, worth a year's wages, and pours it out on Jesus. She lavishes on him what is surely her most precious possession. The disciples criticized the waste of money that could have been used for good deeds, but Jesus rebukes them and calls it beautiful. Our good deeds please God, but nothing delights him more than the heartfelt worship of a soul devoted to him. So Jesus promises that her story will be told everywhere as the gospel goes out. Mary's been listening closely to Jesus. She's aware that a momentous event approaches. This is the climax of human redemption. The first week of class, I told how man was separated from God and creation fell into disarray when Adam and Eve sinned. And now the promised redemption of mankind and all creation is here. God's victory over Satan, over sin, his kingdom come to earth. We've called it the upside down kingdom because it's so opposite to human ways, right? That's not a term we made up, it's widely used. But in truth, we are the ones upside down. Have you ever watched a child stand with his legs apart and bend way over and look back from between his legs and say, mommy, you're upside down. So that's what we've been doing to God, really. Now God is turning us right side up. 
With redemption accomplished, what's left to us on earth now is simply to preach the gospel to all nations before the coming of Christ. And that's how Matthew ends. But we need to go back to chapter 26. Verses one to five show God's sovereignty. The chief priests and elders are plotting to kill Jesus. They decide to wait until the Passover crowds leave because Jesus is so popular. Meanwhile, Jesus tells his disciples that he'll be killed in two days time during the Passover celebration. He knows better than the Jewish leaders what they're going to do. When Judas offers to betray Jesus quietly away from the crowds, the leaders proceed immediately. Mary offered Jesus an incredible sum of money. Judas betrays Jesus for only 30 pieces of silver. We read in Exodus, that's the value of a slave gored to death by an ox. We call the next verses the Last Supper, but to truly understand them, we must see them as Jesus celebrating the Passover Seder with his disciples. The Seder was a ceremonial meal commemorating the original Passover in Egypt. Families ate unleavened bread and roast lamb, drank cups of wine, read scripture, and sang psalms. You may have attended a modern Seder, which is similar. But as Jesus leads the ceremony, he changes it to refer to his own looming sacrifice, which the ancient Passover foreshadowed. The blood of the Passover lamb in Egypt, painted over doorways, protected God's people from judgment by the angel of death. Now the blood of Christ, the lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world, will protect from judgment all who come to him in faith. Breaking the bread, Jesus says, this is my body. That's confusing. When he passes the cup, he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do the disciples realize how closely he parallels the words of Moses in Exodus 24? Moses took the blood, threw it on the people, that's the blood of the sacrificed oxen, and said, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The blood of the covenant. Jesus is instituting a new covenant sealed with his own blood sacrifice rather than an ox. The book of Hebrews explains in chapter nine, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. You can read all of Hebrews 9 and 10 to, to get more. How much do the disciples understand? Well, in your homework, you looked at Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. And you studied um, the whole paragraph about the law written on their hearts. I don't think the disciples understood very much yet. And not until the Holy Spirit comes, but the Holy Spirit will instruct them. 
Then the sinfulness of the disciples intrudes on the evening. First, Jesus discloses that one of them will betray him. Is he giving Judas a chance to repent? Or reassuring his disciples that he is still sovereign? Later, Jesus announces that they will all fall away from him, and one will deny him. Don't you think that later, after they failed Jesus, they were reassured to know that he wasn't surprised by their failures? He knew what they were and chose them anyway. The same goes for us. Jesus knew in advance all that we would be and do, but he chose us anyway. So take heart, even in your failures. The meal ends with singing. Usually it was Psalms 113 or 115, all the way through to 118. Read them later. Ponder how Jesus feels, singing of trusting in God, of God's faithfulness and victory, as he himself is facing the cross. That's 115 to 118. Then Jesus leads his disciples to Gethsemane on the slope of Mount Olivet across the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem. Leaving eight of them at a distance, he takes James, Peter, and John to keep watch while he prays alone. Jesus knows the emotional, spiritual, and physical anguish ahead. He makes two requests of God. The first is conditional. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. The second is absolute. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. God's will be done no matter what. That's a powerful model for our prayers. Lay a bedrock foundation of trust in God and commitment to do his will. And on top of that, pour out all of your fears and pain, your doubts and desires. But for Jesus, the only way is the cross. If someone tries to suggest to you that there's a way to God apart from Jesus, remember this, there is no other way. Judas arrives with a mob from the priests and elders and he singles out Jesus with a kiss. When Peter cuts off a man's ear with his sword, Jesus rebukes him. If he needed defending, his father could send legions of angels. But Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. His battle must be fought on another level. Jesus fights for his kingdom through Gethsemane prayer and through going to the cross. We think on that if you're ever tempted to fight kingdom battles with the world's weapons, it doesn't work. They take Jesus to the house of Caiaphas where the council looks for false evidence against him. They don't want truth or justice, but whatever keeps them in power. Jesus is silent until the high priest puts him under oath to answer. Then he speaks powerfully. I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of, God, of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And that does it. His words of truth bring him only beating and scorn. In the midst of this, we see two different trajectories of human failure. Peter denies Jesus and then repents in sorrow and he stays with them. Judas feels remorse for his betrayal and he goes and hangs himself. We sinners need to know how to repent, be forgiven and cleansed and keep on serving as Peter did.
The leaders take Jesus to Pilate because they have no authority to execute him. Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent and he wants to release him. But finally he gives in to the mob stirred up by the Jewish leaders. He orders Jesus to be crucified. Soldiers flog, beat, and mock Jesus before leading him away. Crucifixion in those times was the cruelest form of execution, entailing many hours of physical agony, usually more than a day, sometimes two or three days, along with rude jeering from the gathered crowd until death finally came. But for Jesus, the physical pain of crucifixion is eclipsed by spiritual agony. Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord lays on him the iniquity of us all. And from 1 Peter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. And you read in Deuteronomy that the one who's hanged on a tree is cursed. What was it like for the spotless son of God to feel the guilt and shame of innumerable sins as if they were his own? My sins placed on him. He who has lived a perfect life before the father now besmirched with sin. But worse yet, Jesus feels the wrath of his father against those sins. Paul, speaking of Jesus, says in Romans 3, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Propitiation, the definition is a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end and in so doing changes God's wrath toward us into favor. God's rightful wrath against sin has been long withheld, but now he pours it out on Jesus until his anger is satisfied. Jesus endures the anger that we deserve and we receive God's favor. From noon until three, Jesus suffers as God lays sins upon him and pours wrath out on him. The scene is so appalling that the sun does not shine on it. About three o'clock, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He feels agony beyond description. He's separated for a time from the fellowship of his father that he's known from eternity past. But I don't think he's totally despairing. He knows that this excruciating event must take place. He deliberately quotes Psalm 22, a prophetic description of his crucifixion. Perhaps he has been meditating on that Psalm as he hangs there on the tree. King David wrote Psalm 22, but David never experienced all the things that those verses describe. 
Listen to a few verses. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. You hear the echoes of Matthew in that? I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now think on that. How would King David on his own ever think to write about mocking crowds and pierced hands and feet and the gloating Jews dividing up clothes and casting lots for them? The psalm is a powerful prophecy. If Jesus is reflecting on this psalm, listen to some of the trust interspersed with the pain. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. See, you see the trust interspersed with this agony. Read, it, read the whole psalm on your own. Trusting in God does not lessen Jesus' immense agony, but it strengthens him to endure it and to believe that it's worth it. It's a firm foundation underneath horror upon horror. John's Gospel says that Jesus cries out, it is finished. His work accomplished, Jesus consciously, deliberately yields up his spirit in death. The temple curtain guarding the Holy of Holies tears in two from top to bottom. Believers now have unparalleled access to God. The book of Hebrews explains in chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, those places that the ordinary Jew could never, ever go near, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near, right up to the altar, with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus is both priest and sacrifice and he has opened the way to God that was never opened like that before. The earth shakes, 
Many tombs of Old Testament saints break open. It paves the way for their being resurrected and then going into the city on Sunday morning and walking around. I think they were probably taken up into heaven later. We don't know. Perhaps this is mentioned to show that Jesus' redemption also applies to believers who lived before in the Old Testament area. It's not too late for them. They can be redeemed also. Sin is paid for. God's wrath is quenched. That's the gift of God's grace. Paul says in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, but only if you are in Christ. And if you have come to Christ for salvation and you still feel guilty or like God is mad at you, find someone to help you resolve that. It doesn't belong into the new life. We have no condemnation. So if it's lingering there, don't rest until this verse feels true in your heart as well as your head. Joseph of Arimathea asks Pilate for permission to take Jesus' body down. He places the body in his own tomb and rolls a stone across the opening. The priests and Pharisees remember that Jesus promised to rise again after three days. They get permission from Pilate to seal the tomb and post guards so the disciples can't steal the body in a fake resurrection. They don't know that a seal and guards are not going to stop God. Early Sunday morning, after the Sabbath, women go to the tomb with spices to finish the burial procedure. They're met by an earthquake and an angel rolling the stone away. The angel says that the crucified Jesus has risen. He invites them to inspect the tomb and then go tell the disciples. And as they go, Jesus himself appears to them. He says the disciples should go to Galilee. He's not a ghost, he's fully alive again in the body. A side note, I think the guards at the tomb are temple guards under the authority of the priests, not Roman soldiers, because they report back to the priests right away and not to Pilate. And Roman soldiers would have been executed immediately if they fell asleep on their watch and failed their duty. So what does the resurrection mean for us? First, it means that the price Jesus paid truly bought redemption. It validates what he did. The Apostle Paul taught in 1 Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. The resurrection of Jesus is the seal of approval on what he has done. The guarantee that it is true and it is finished. But there's more meaning for us. You've probably heard this analogy um, being taught. What Jesus did is something like a person coming into a courtroom after we've been declared guilty and offering to pay a huge fine that we can't pay, or perhaps even taking a death penalty for us and we go away free. There's some truth there, but it falls short. We don't just walk away free when Jesus redeems us. We're not saved by some transaction that takes place outside of us. We are saved 
by being totally and permanently united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection. Resurrection life is not something that we have in ourselves. It's ours only because we are now one with the crucified and resurrected Christ. Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Remember in Exodus how we talked about saved from and saved for? God doesn't redeem us to be free agents. He pulls us out of bondage to Satan and sin and into his own service. But since the cross, that relationship is even closer. We have this new life because we are one with Christ, indwelt by him through the Holy Spirit in a way Old Testament believers couldn't have imagined. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ who lives in me. We tend to overlook all those little in Christ and with Christ phrases in the New Testament, but they're the most important part. We act as if we have some independent life that God is fixing up. Truth is, that old life of ours is full of death and destruction. Our only hope is the new life that we live in union with Christ. The resurrection means that Christ is alive today. We are redeemed and empowered by being made one with him in his death and in his resurrection life. Paul refers to the Galatians like this. My little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Life as a Christian is having Christ formed in us. Remember Matthew 18 about kingdom life in the church? I kept saying that we can live that way only as Christ works in us through the Holy Spirit. The goal of our Christian life is to allow Christ's life to shine through us more and more and our own old fleshly life to be continually put to death. Christ formed in us. So back to Matthew. We go next to Galilee where Jesus proclaims what we call the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Redemption is accomplished for all nations, Jew and Gentile alike, and now the world needs to know, why is all authority given to Jesus? You looked at Paul's explanation in Philippians 2. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you remember the quote from Daniel 7 that we referred to several weeks ago, talking about the Son of Man? We'll look at it again now in context. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the triumph of the Lamb. Our Lord reigns. Or, as the Moravians say, our Lamb has conquered. Let us follow him. You can go to the church downtown and see the seal in their window for yourself. So what about the Great Commission, taking the gospel to all nations? Well, it's a command from the highest authority in the universe. But it's not just something tacked on to the end of the book. It's deeply rooted in all that's gone before. Listen to the final verses of Psalm 22. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship you. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation that they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. All the families of the earth, all the, nation, all the families of the nations shall worship before you. John Piper is known for saying, missions exists because worship does not. Missions exists because worship does not. The natural result of God doing such a great work is that all the earth should hear of it and worship him. God's people will joyfully spread the truth around the world and down through the generations. If we try out a new restaurant and like it, we tell our friends. We might even tell them about a new flavor at Starbucks, right? So how much more should we want the whole world to know about the greatest event in human history that brings people from hopeless darkness into eternal life with God? I grew up in a non-Christian home. I was saved in high school through the witness of a friend. And I remember thinking, where has this been all my life? Why didn't these people tell me before? I thought I was pretty old at 16. <laughs> and I thought, what if no one had ever told me? I could have missed it. As I came to realize that millions of people still had no chance to hear the gospel, my heart ached. I was sure that I was a scientist and not a missionary, but I prayed that someone would reach those people. Of course, God eventually convinced me that I was a missionary, I just thought I was a scientist. There's an even deeper motivation though. We've studied the life of Jesus. He came with a powerful mission to seek and to save the lost, to provide redemption for the world. If the basis of our Christian life is our union with Christ, allowing his life to be lived in us, is it possible that he no longer cares about that mission? If Christ is truly being formed in us, would we not have his heart for the world? 
a burning desire that everyone could hear what he has done. We can't all go to other places to share the gospel, but many of us can. Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf preached the gospel in 1742 at an inn on Newport Road that we still drive past. You could call Zinzendorf the rich young ruler who said yes to Jesus. Lidditz was founded as a missionary outreach by the Moravians. The Moravians were one of history's most powerful missionary movements. Their goal then was to send 10% of their members overseas, tithing themselves to the world. Some young men even sold themselves as slaves so that they could share the gospel in slave barracks. Now, I'm not suggesting that we do that, but what could we do with that kind of passion? The Moravians started a prayer watch for missions 24-7, around the clock, that lasted more than 100 years. We could do that, or at least get it started. I'm not going to be around that long. There's a multitude of ways to support God's worldwide work out from here. Praying, giving, learning, encouraging, and equipping workers. The reward is matchless. My mother-in-law and father-in-law pioneered in North Thailand with the Mian people. They learned the language, devised a way to write it, taught the people to read and write, started translating the New Testament, and most of all, they preached the gospel. This is my father-in-law baptizing the first Mian believer in obedience to Jesus' command. Other workers also went to the Mian. Today, there are thousands of Mian believers in Asia and elsewhere. When my mother-in-law died, a woman from the Mian Church Association in the U.S. flew cross-country to pay tribute to my in-laws at the funeral. A few of you were there, if you remember that. She told everyone what it meant for the gospel to come to her people. And she thanked my husband and his siblings for their sacrifice. Was it sacrifice or was it privilege? The apostle Paul counted as privilege sacrifice for the gospel. And I think he was right. Matthew ends with a powerful promise. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. As we go and do his work, Jesus is with us always. The literal Greek translation is, I am with you the whole of every day. What a promise. Although redemption is accomplished, the work is not yet finished, but the resurrected Jesus is with us as we go. So let's pray. I'm starting with Paul's prayer from Ephesians 1. Father, I ask you, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, to give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in knowing you, to enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we may know what is the hope to which you've called us, what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe, 
according to the working of your great might that you worked in Christ, when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places. May your kingdom come and your will be done. And we ask that the world will be different because of what we have studied today, that you will work in our hearts, help us to work in the hearts of the people around us, and may the nations know who you are, that you are Lord and what you've done. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, our risen and living Savior, who died to accomplish our entrance into your throne, to the ability to come close to you and talk to you and know that we are received by you. And we thank you for that. In his name, amen.